This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is Kelly Henderson, and you are listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast. My guest this week is orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Hanscom. Dr. Hanscom made a name for himself for many years as one of the top spinal surgeons and has now completely quit surgery and is making waves by actually talking patients out of surgery and providing alternative methods to alleviate their chronic pain and ultimately live life pain-free. Dr. Hanscom is also a fellow COVID patient, and I was able to talk to him about my symptoms after testing positive. He has created an entire plan for treating COVID that involves treating things like anxiety and stress, two of the root causes of inflammation, in order to fight the virus. As bizarre as that sounds, it worked for me, and I believe it helped me heal much more quickly. Dr. Hanscom broke down all of the details of why that works. Here's our conversation. So you've basically become, you've become known as the orthopedic surgeon known for not for taking patients out of surgery and providing an alternative method uh, to go to that's for pain-free. And so I'm just right. I'm curious how you got there because you practice as an orthopedic surgeon for so many years and then in 2018 you just completely quit surgery. So let's go back and talk a little bit about the process that got you there. Well, I have been one of the few surgeons who's been on both sides of this fence. I went to a very high-level spine fellowship in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1985-86. And when I came to Seattle in 86, I was one of the group of surgeons who did nine times the rate of a spine surgery per capita as any place else in the entire country. So I was a zealot. So I thought the answer to back pain was a fusion. We had new instrumentation. We thought we were on the forefront of medicine doing these operations, but there's no data. And in 1993, a paper came out that showed that the success rate of a spine fusion for back pain was 22%. And I just stopped. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wasn't going to keep doing this. And in the meantime, right around that period of time, I developed severe chronic pain myself. And for the next 13 years, I could not come out of it. Hmm. And I developed over 17 physical symptoms. And it was coming out of this process that I evolved the process of coming out of chronic pain 
but I did know that surgery, so I did know I was very, very aggressive doing the surgery and it simply did not work. So it, you said it was a 20, what would you, what was the percentage? 20, 22%. And 22% success one, rate. Right. So, the, so I thought it was 90%. I mean, this is a big operation. Yeah. You're welding the spine together. It's got a significant complication rate. You have a 20% rate of reoperation within two years after the surgery. Wow. And so people were expecting, I thought it was 90% success rate. And there has not been one research paper in 60 years that documents that a spine fusion is a good idea for back pain. Not one, not one wow. research paper. Or over $20 billion a year in spine surgery with a lot of it being done for that. So why is it recommended so often if it does not even have a high success rate? I don't know. Honestly, I mean, I, you can blame the financial issues. I mean, usually spine surgery is considered one of the number one or two revenue producers of a given hospital. And spine fusions are a big generator of revenue, much more than just a simple decompression. Mm-hmm. And I'm a spinal deformity surgeon. I'm a complex surgeon, so I deal with all sorts of redos. I've had one gentleman, gentleman who had 29 surgeries in 20 years. So I'm the person who deals with the very end-of-the-line stuff, but what's disconcerting so when I look back at the original scans, and I was quite diligent in looking at that, probably most of the time that first operation did not need to be done. So you have one operation done that leads to a cascade effect, then you need more and more surgeries to take care of the problems created by the prior surgery. It's a nightmare. So the actual surgery is then creating more problems than the person had to begin with. Correct. Wow. And the problem is what happens is that you do a spine fusion. In other words, you weld the two vertebrae together with screws and plates and bone graft. And you're taking this beautiful mobile spine. <clears throat> Even if it's degenerated, it still moves. It has rhythm to it. And you're putting a stiff piece of bone and scar tissue in the middle of the spine. There's a stress point above and below that fusion that with repetition starts to break down. There's a 30 to 40% chance of your spine breaking down within 10 years with a spine fusion. What finally drove me to quit doing spine surgery is that it became more and more common the more clear the data became. Again, every paper, 20, 30% success rate, yet the volume of spine surgery continues to increase. Then what's happened, they're now doing 8, 10, and 12 level fusions instead of 1 level fusions for back pain. There is no data to support a 14-level fusion for back pain. That's from your neck to your pelvis. And the complication rate's over 70%. Mm. That's when I decided I just could not do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I always have this mentality about surgeries and medicine. And I feel like a lot of times in our culture, if you go see a doctor, they're like, here, take this pill. And it doesn't actually treat the root cause of what's going on. It just treats the symptom. And so what I heard a lot in um, or read a lot in your book was just that exact thing. Like doctors, like you said, not having the data that backed up that the surgery was even going to help. But it was just like, here, let's do this surgery that may not even actually fix the root cause of your patient's problem. Well, exactly. Well, it gets it gets much more complicated than that. But just to keep it really simple. Mm-hmm. Is that if you're going to if you're going to take your car to the mechanic, you want to you want to know what the diagnosis is, correct? Right. You yes. Fix that problem. So what happens with spine surgery? Occasionally, there's a perfect bone spur that pinches a given nerve. The symptoms match exactly, 
surgery works beautifully. But see, back pain is very vague. We know that disc degeneration is normal as you age. And we start doing a fusion on a, on a given disc, there's no way of proving that it is the source of the pain. And in fact, it's been shown that discs are not the source of chronic pain. Then additionally, we know that within six to 12 months, the brain simply memorizes the pain. It's like riding a bicycle, once you have this pain memorized, it's a programming problem. Once you have the pain memorized, you cannot unlearn it. It's like riding a bicycle. So you have memorized pain, you have discs that are not the cause of pain, you do a fusion for memorized pain, and you're doing fusion for a problem that has been proven not to be the problem, again, the success rate is about 20%, and I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah. So surgery works well when you have a matching symptom, matching pathology, and you do the operation. And what my book did called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? It puts people into one of four quadrants, with the variables being the structural problem, yes or no. In other words, is surgery even possible? If you can't see it, you can't fix it. So I call that non-structural. If a structural surgery is possible, then the state of the nervous system is either calm or fired up or hypervigilant. So if you have a hypervigilant, fired up nervous system, any procedure can make things worse. So right now we're doing a lot of surgery in people that have nothing you can see on a test. That's why I think 70% of spine surgery simply should not be done, at least 70%. Wow. So your big thing with patients, um, I mean, this was maybe before you actually quit doing surgery altogether, but your big thing that you said was you just have to get to know your patient. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because what you just said um, is you're not actually seeing or pinpointing the pain or where it's coming from. It's just doing these surgeries. And so what were you seeing in a lot of your patients that made you say, wait a second, like why would we go directly to surgery? Well, you know, as I suffered through my own 13-year experience with or- ordeal with chronic pain, I came out of chronic pain. <clears throat> I did learn it was a neurological problem. And that even with a structural problem that you do surgery on, if you don't calm down the nervous system first, the results are not very good. So what I learned is that we would look at the anatomy very carefully and there's three parts of solving pain. One is awareness. In other words, understand the diagnosis, understand the nature of pain, and the nature of the solution. Then the second aspect is pain is complicated. It's affected by lack of sleep, stress, medications, exercise, nutrition. All of those things affect pain, and you have to address all of those simultaneously. Then the third thing is that since pain's complex and each person is individual, the person has to take charge of their own care. So what we found out consistently, we have had, I saw hundreds and hundreds of patients go through a similar process that I learned myself the hard way. And I was watching, it's essentially self-directed, minimal to no risk. So I'm watching these people go to pain-free with minimal risk, minimal cost, and having horrible outcomes with really expensive, risky procedures. Mm-hmm. So it was that contrast that made the difference But it turns out chronic pain is a neurological problem. Okay, well, tell us more about that because you keep referencing you learned this from your own experience. So what happened to you that helped you to start understanding that? I'm sorry, what happened with me personally? Yes, because the other day when we were talking, didn't you tell me that you kind of were known as a person um, 
that just didn't really have, you know, have to deal with feelings. You were just strong. You were, you just could do anything kind of person. And then you had a breakdown. Right. So the problem basically boils down to threat versus safety. And threats can be a bully or a virus or bacteria or a predator. Mm -hmm. And mental threats can be negative thoughts, emotions, but even more importantly is repressed emotions. And when I came into serious trouble as a spine surgeon, I went to a very high-level spine fellowship. Spine surgery is stressful, especially complex spine surgery. Mm -hmm. And I was a master at suppressing fear, emotions. And, And the way I did that was bring it on. I could take on anything. I was tough. I was really, really tough. And the problem is I was so good at suppressing emotions, I really, the word in psychology would be called dissociated. Yeah. And I went from literally having no anxiety to a panic attack in one day. And after the panic attack, I could not stop it. And it's the first thing in my life that I couldn't really control. I mean, it's sort of a joke, but not really that surgeons have control issues. And we do, we want to control the environment, we want to control the outcomes, we want to control everything. But what you can control is your body's chemistry. Mm. So with the panic attack, as a master, suppressing and repressing emotions, and when I when they exploded, it was like the lid blown off of a pressure cooker. Right. It was horrible. So you were having anxiety and panic attacks. Were you having any sort of physical pain? What, what happened under sustained threat, in other words, no human being can escape their thoughts or emotions, so we either suffer with them or re- or we repress them. But what happens, threat puts the body on defensiveness, which includes the immune system, which includes inflammatory cells. And what happens with inflammation causes physical tissue damage. We know this. We know that chronic stress or sustained threat causes disease. And the, and the question is why? So you know there's a higher incidence of autoimmune disorders, higher incidence of cancer, heart disease, suicide, anxiety, and depression. So what happens when you have sustained levels of inflammation, it causes tissue damage. There's over 30 physical symptoms of a sustained threat response. At the worst part of my ordeal, I had 17 of these at the same time. Mm. So I had migraine headaches, there was ringing in my ears, burning in my feet, my scalp would itch, these little skin rashes would pop up. I had back pain, neck pain, tendonitis. All of these were the result of sustained threat and sustained inflammation. And when I learned the tools to calm this stuff down, to calm these inflammatory markers down, all the symptoms disappeared. I'm fine. Wow. So is that, when you say the chronic pain, it's tied to our nervous system. Can you kind of talk through that? Because, I mean, that sounds like a little bit of what your experience looked like. And then also, it's a lot of what you've seen in your patients, correct? Kelly, can I stop you just for a second? Sure. For some reason, I have a really hard time understanding you. It's, it's a little muffled somehow. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Let me see. So I'm not quite catching the questions. Are you able to understand me okay? I can, yes. Is it is it better if I hold my microphone like this? Yeah, that's better. Okay. I like, feel like there's a slight echo with it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Let me know if that happens again, and I'll okay. make sure to... Um, let me think. What did I just ask you? <laughs> Actually, something to do. Something to do about the programming. Chronic pain. pain. Okay. Yes. Um, Let me see. I probably have a question written down about that. Um, 
Okay, so it sounds like a little bit of your experience was tying chronic pain to the nervous system. And it's also, it's, it's highly what you've experienced with your patients, right? So can you talk us through how that works? You mean about how chronic pain evolves? Yeah, and just how it's connected to the nervous system. So I, you probably have had the, you've heard the term holistic medicine or mind-body medicine. Yes. So those are terms that, that are used pretty frequently that I really object to because the mind and body are just a unit. In other words, your body doesn't function without a nervous system and your nervous system can't function, function without a body to support it. So it's like trying to fly a Boeing jet without a computer. So it's just a unit. So the only place in the body that pain is perceived is in the brain. And what your body is, is a bunch of receptors, vision, feel, touch, taste, sharp, dull, all these sensations are coming into your body that are then sent to your brain. Your brain interprets that as safe or dangerous. So if things are safe, you're full of anti-inflammatory cytokines or these little anti-inflammatory proteins. You're full of oxytocin, growth hormone, dopamine, serotonin, these great drugs, and your body regenerates. And so it's all interpreted by your nervous system. Your nervous system, every second, is interpreting every sensory input. They're all competing for attention. And the sum total is summarized every second by your brain. Again, is safe, neutral, or dangerous. What happens with ongoing, again, mental, by the way, mental pain is a bigger problem than physical pain because thoughts create the same physical reaction in the brain as a physical threat, but it's sustained. So then you have a process where you have sustained impulses. It's like an athlete learning a skill. There's a programming problem. So with repetition, your brain, first of all, becomes sensitized. And we know the analogy of water torture, which is a little challenging even to talk about. But they strap a poor prisoner down to a board, and they drip a drop of water on his or her forehead. It's just a drop of water. The drop of water does not change but within a short period of time, that becomes like a sledgehammer every drop, every time. Nothing changed. They've also done research MRI scans that show that over the course of time, the brain becomes 500% more reactive to the same impulse. People in chronic pain always get worse, even without additional injury because of the sensitization process. The next step is with repetition against a programming problem, like a baseball pitcher learning how to throw a baseball at 100 miles an hour, it takes lots of repetition. And so the brain gets programmed, and once it gets programmed, like riding a bicycle, it becomes memorized and permanent. Pain impulses come in so quickly that the memorization occurs within six to 12 months. That's been well documented with research MRI scans. Then the final phase is there's factors that affect the perception of pain. For instance, lack of sleep causes pain. In other words, I used to think that people in chronic pain couldn't sleep because of the pain. Right. Not true. It's actually the lack of sleep actually causes chronic back pain, which is counterintuitive, right? Right. But what happens, lack of sleep causes increased inflammation, which increases the speed of nerve conduction, so you feel the pain. Wow. So, okay, because... When I, in your book, you talk a little bit about the factors just to determine the state of your nervous system. Quality of sleep was like one of the main things. And you say it's super important to get, what, seven hours of sleep a night? Correct. And so this is for this exact reason. Like if you are not sleeping, your body will physically start to manifest certain conditions. 
there's another research paper that shows if you miss one night of sleep, one bad night of sleep, mm-hmm. will increase your pain the next day between 25 to 50%. Oh, my gosh. Right. So here's the deal. So what's happening in spine surgery is that there's a paper out of Baltimore published in 2014 that showed that, showed that only 10% of neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons were addressing these risk factors for poor outcomes prior to surgery. Okay. Sleep is one of them. So why would you jump to 10 hours of surgery if you haven't found out that somebody's sleeping or Right, not. right. And that's what started the whole doc project is I was in my own chronic pain process. I read about sleep. I started to work on it with myself. But with my patients, it's very concrete. It's always solvable. And I noticed a dramatic decrease in their pain just with the sleep. Conversely, if we didn't get the sleep under control early, nothing else worked. So sleep is solvable. It's always number one. There's a bunch of ways of getting there. In chapter 14 of my book, Back in Control, is just about sleep. And sleep is absolutely the foundation of starting the whole process. Hmm. What about when your patients came in and, you know, they're mentioning this back pain or these specific symptoms? And were you getting to the place where you would start to say, okay, like you mentioned the sleep thing. And then are you asking them questions about the stress levels in their life to also determine what's going on personally? Yes. And it doesn't, well, there's two things I can do. I mean, first of all, treating chronic pain is actually very time efficient because most of the material you can get off a questionnaire and people put it down. I mean, people will have had a bone spur for five or 10 years and the pain may have started a year ago. Something changed. Invariably, it's almost a life stress. Either loss of a job, loss of a family member, domestic abuse. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how much people suffer that come into my office in chronic pain. And again, that suffering translates into inflammatory changes in the body, which increases the pain. So you can't treat symptoms. I mean, what medicine's doing right now, we're throwing random, simplistic solutions at a complex problem. You can't treat a patient in isolation because their response to the environment changes the body's chemistry. So if somebody's going home to an abusive relationship, surgery's not going to help that. And it is not psychological. That is a flat-out huge threat. Your body's on fire. And the root cause is the inflammation, not the structure. Right, because the, so the structure is when it's not like you're saying there's no reason to ever do surgery, right? Because I think like, you know, a lot of people I do talk about holistic approaches a lot because I really buy into are the like our bodies healing themselves. I think they're incredible the way they can do that if you can. However, there are situations where there's a structural issue and you do need to have surgery. So it's not always that, but you're just saying you look at the bigger picture such as stress, such as lack of sleep, um, whatever other emotional, mental things that are happening in these people's lives that they're not dealing with. But what I found was so interesting is people's resistance to this kind of mentality. So did you bump up against that a lot? Well, I mean, people have a, I mean, we're so programmed to think that the structure is the problem and that surgery is going to solve that. I mean, is that right. a fair statement? Okay. But again, by the time I get done with my practice, what the data says to do, this has been around for 50 years again, is that you deal with sleep, anxiety, catastrophizing, depression, exercise, medication stabilization. We call it prehab. And we put all of our patients through three to four months of this before we did any surgery. 
And in my larger surgeries, spinal deformity surgeries, I would do it for a year. And what would happen is the start of the normalizer body's chemistry, the pain would disappear. Even with major surgical problems, they would cancel the surgery. Not because they wanted to live with the pain, the pain would actually disappear. That was a shock. I yeah. always said if you have a structural problem, fix it quickly. But it turns out that the pain gets memorized. It does get connected with more and more life, is, life experiences. And so what you're doing around pain, such as these permanent pathways like riding a bicycle, you're creating detours around those. And I'm now convinced you can actually program your brain around anything. And I just recently had a gentleman who had 27 surgeries in 20 years, and he was a mess, opioids, alcohol, divorce, all sorts of stuff. He's fine. He's been pain-free for four years. I did not think that was possible. We have people with phantom limb pain, no arm, no leg. They mm -hmm. still feel the pain, and they can program themselves right around it. So what you're doing is like installing a virtual desktop on your computer with the new desktop not having pain. It's, it's remarkable. It's all based on neuroplasticity, where your brain is physically changing every second. What you're doing, you're directing traffic, so your brain goes a certain direction. If you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off, and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at the Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.
So when you say our our bodies memorize pain, how does that happen? Well, I mean, it's like riding a bicycle. I mean, with any skill, you focus on it and you learn with repetition. I mean, the, what I use is a metaphor. It's like learning a new language. Mm-hmm. The way you learn French is you read the book, you learn the verbs, you listen, you may immerse yourself in the language. But let's say in five years you can speak French. Your brain changed. You have new neurons, new dendrites, new myelin, new glial cells. I mean, your brain changes every second. So what happens is not muscle memory, it's actually your brain physically changes structure. Once those pathways or circuits are embedded in your brain, you can't get rid of them. Again, it's like riding a bicycle with repetition. It's a programming issue. And they did a study out of Chicago 2014 where they showed that with chronic back pain, that the pain shifts from the back pain center of the brain to the emotional center in about six to 12 months. So you have the same pain, but a different driver. And again, those are permanent circuits and you can't get rid of them. Huh. Okay. So how are you, how are you, let's talk through the direct your own care because you're, how are you telling people to reprogram basically? Well, that's how, this whole process emerged. Of course, I was in chronic pain for years. Yeah. Nobody could tell me what was going on. I lost all hope. I was incredibly discouraged. Of course, being a physician and surgeon, I tried everything. I had everything available at my disposal. Right. Nothing worked. And of course, one of the biggest problems that people get into is doctors, doctors tell you, well, we can't see anything wrong. It must be psychological. And that's not true. Your body's inflamed. And not, your body is inflamed and on fire that's a problem. That is not psychological. So there's a sequence of steps, with the first step being what we call simple expressive writing. So remember, the mental pain is a bigger problem than the physical pain because you can't escape your thoughts. But there's a simple exercise that has been documented in over 8,000, 1,000 research papers to be effective. It's called expressive writing. You simply write down your thoughts and you tear them up. And you can't escape your thoughts, but you can separate from them. And so, and so for some reason, it is an incredibly powerful tool. It was the first step in my 15-year journey in chronic pain that actually started to, started to change things. It's the only mandatory requirement of the entire healing process is, is that expressive writing. And it's not the solution, but it's the starting point. So remember, the way you solve chronic pain is you create new circuits around the old circuits based on neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is a process of awareness and separation to start and then reprogramming. And so what the writing does, it creates awareness of the negative thoughts or any thoughts. And now you've separated with the paper on the table and that space is connected with vision and feel. And then the reprogramming can be all sorts of stuff. Uh, It could be mindfulness. I mean, right now, just drop your shoulders for a second and just feel where you're sitting. And so what you're doing, you put your brain on a different sensation. And so what you're doing you learn tools that drop down that body's chemical response. So expressive writing is always a first step, which by the way also affects sleep. Second step is called low active meditation, where you simply put your brain on a different sensation. Um, the next one, of course, is sleep, which is its own topic, but again, extremely effective in dropping down inflammation and dropping down pain. Mm. But the other one, which has been really fascinating, and we learned this at our workshops, that we would do these three to five day workshops in New York at the Omega Institute, and probably 80% of people went to pain-free within those three to five days, every time. 
we could not understand what had happened because it happened every time. It turned out we were creating a major chemical shift in people's brains, and they're shifting back onto safe pathways as opposed to threat. People are also talking to each other. We know social connection is a big deal. But one of the cardinal rules of this workshop is that you could not discuss your pain, could not, could not discuss your medical care or discuss your pain, because where's your attention? Mm. So from a neuroplasticity standpoint, your brain is going to develop wherever you place this attention. If your attention is on the pain, on your health care, et cetera, that's where your brain is going to develop. So it's not positive thinking, which is a way of suppressing negative thinking, but it, it is positive vision. But the corollary to that is no complaining, no criticism, no giving unasked for advice, no gossiping. Decide where you want to put your nervous system, where you want to put your attention, and just do it. So, when the, so almost as powerful as expressive writing, or I think equally as powerful, has been this absolute rule that if you were in my office, I would say, look, when you walk out of my office, you will never discuss your pain or medical care with anybody ever again. End of story. Okay, well, I'm conf- I, I, this is very fascinating to me because I have two thought processes. So with the writing, is that the way that it gets, you know, like if you do a bunch of therapy, they say you have to get it out of your body, right? And so, and these are the reasons that they say therapy works, why like support groups work because you're not... Um, pushing the feelings down, you're actually feeling them, you're either talking about them or whatever it is. Um, I can see, however, that if you continue to talk about the things over and over and over on a loop, how it, that's the only thing you're focused on. So is that why both the combination of both works for the reprogramming? Um, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. all I know is that, you know, people will, for instance, they'll complain about their boss or their spouse or whatever with other people. But, you know, people bond on complaining, right? Yes. This, I call it a pseudo-bond. And, again, one of the worst prognostic factors for chronic pain is actually belonging to a chronic pain support group. And the problem is they complain about their pain all the time. So remember, the keyword is neuroplasticity. You want to stimulate your brain to change where you want it to go. And when you're complaining, et cetera, well, that's where your system is going to develop. So it turned out to be extraordinarily powerful just to, I use this some just be nice. Hmm. And the other thing is when you are complaining, it's called mirror neurons. You tend to attract people to you that are also complaining. Oh, yeah. And so you get this tremendous effect taking place in a positive way. The other thing is, I think maybe even a different conversation, which I would love to talk about, is that we found out that we could do the writing, relaxation, the sleep. We can talk about anger and forgiveness in a second. But what would happen is that the families were the biggest triggers and one of the biggest obstacles of people healing. Because what happens, anytime you're anxious or frustrated, you're triggered. Mm -hmm. Your triggers are programmed in your brain by your parents, which now play out in your new family. It's paradoxical that human consciousness developed by language and interaction. We have a tremendous need for social connection. The closer the connection, the better but the closer the connection, the deeper the triggers. Yes. And what happens in families is that what disrupts families is actually a neurological trick. And once you understand the trickery and learn to de-energize these triggers, then you can live your life in a creative, enjoyable way. But in chronic pain, it's particularly a problem because people in chronic pain are trapped, they're angry, and guess who the targets are? Family. Their family. Yeah. 
And that's one reason that motivates me tremendously to continue with this pain project because um, every couple triggers each other, no exceptions. And so by understanding, by understanding the neurological nature of those triggers and how powerful they are, then you can start working around those. As you know, in, in an argument, you can never talk this stuff out. But see, the problem is they've done a study shows that when one person is angry and frustrated and triggered, their pain goes up. And it's not psychological. It's called mirror neurons, where if you're upset, the people around you will be upset. But also neurons that fire together, wire together. In other words, pain causes anxiety and frustration, but, but when you're anxious and frustrated for another reason, they're just linked to the pain pathways. So they've shown a very clear research that within a couple, if one person starts complaining, the spouse will predictably have a hostile reaction, and guess what? The person in pain has their pain go up. Wow. But it doesn't stop. So we found out the last few years of my practice that by creating, I use the word, artificial structure around the family dynamics, it was unbelievable how, first of all, things would calm down, but the effect of chronic pain was dramatic, but conversely, if we didn't address the family issues at some level, everything else we did simply didn't work. So when the person would come in with the chronic pain and they would do the process, the direct your own care, that's the DOC. That's what you refer to as this, all the things that we're talking about, the writing, the um, sleeping, all of the other things. So when they would start that process, would that heal their relationships in turn? A lot of times as well? Yes. Well, we, we put together part of the website. So what's happening, the book is Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Then the website, backincontrol.com, was the action plan. Mm-hmm. So between the book and the website, it's about 9% self-directed. But we also put up a whole structure around the family dynamics. So I'm not a counselor. This does not take much time. But once we set up this arbitrary set of rules, I said, look, just stop. If you're triggered do not engage was one of them. Also commit to making your house a safe house. In other words, create a structure that allowed the house to calm down and be peaceful, which allowed your nervous system to calm down and be peaceful. So it's a very, very self-directed process. That being said, if we if we can get counselors and people to help, that's much more desirable. Unfortunately, a lot of medicine, medical insurance doesn't pay for the resources we need to actually solve the problem, but it's not that hard. Right. Well, I can only imagine, I'm just thinking through this situation um, of a family, but like when you, when someone comes into your office and you're like, oh, you're having this chronic pain. Okay, well, I'm going to give you this writing exercise and we're going to talk about the amount of sleep that you get. I'm going to talk about your relationships and how you interact with them. I can just imagine that some people would be like, are you serious? Like, this is what you're going to tell me as a doctor. So are, were you getting a lot of those reactions when you first started this kind of practice? Yeah, definitely. I mean, people, see, I was in, I was actually even more at a disadvantage because I'm a big-time surgeon, right? Right. So people are coming to me for, let's just fix that. So first of all, when I said, look, this is not surgical, they're incredibly disappointed and angry. In other words, they came to me for surgery, right? Right. Then they... They want a quick fix, but guess what? This is actually much faster than going through an operation. Sure. The number one factor that predicts a successful outcome from chronic pain is willingness to engage. In other words, so that anger and frustration you talked about, people simply wouldn't do that. They would go. They would go to another surgeon, have the surgery done, 
often with catastrophic outcomes. And, and obviously, I'm not going to say I told you so, but it's very disheartening to watch people walk right into a buzzsaw. Mm-hmm. It's also very disheartening to me that medicine even offers an operation that has about a 20% success rate, right? That's not the patient's responsibility to figure this out. They should not... The responsibility is on the physicians, not the patients, to say, look, this is not surgical. Yeah. So I say, look, I say, look, if so let's pretend you're my patient for a second. Say, look, here you are. I don't see I don't see anything surgical. I'm gonna ask you to do some homework. So I would give I would give them my book. I would say, please look at the website. And we change it now. I just released this this week. It's called the which includes an app which is a much more streamlined approach to starting the process. So I say, look, here's the book. This is your homework. I do want you to start the expressive writing. You don't have to believe one word that I said. In fact, embracing the disbelief is actually critical because I'm not into positive thinking. This is not about believing David Hanscom. What the DOC project does, by the way, which stands for direct your own care, is we're taking known, established, well-documented medical interventions and presenting presenting them in an organized, structured manner. In other words, let's just implement what we already know works. Everything we do is documented on hundreds of research papers, but right now medicine's ignoring the data. Mm-hmm. So I so say, you don't have to believe me to start engaging in proven practices, we'll just go to work. So the number one factor, if people don't want to engage or they're angry and frustrated, guess what, they don't do well. Yeah. And I, I learned to say, look, here you go. I can help you or not. If I try to convince people to get better, why they'll just get angry and get more reactive and more resistant. It turned out that the more open I was and just say, hey, look, here's some homework. I'll see you back in a couple of weeks. It was much more effective. It's so fascinating to me. So we're talking about it in um, relation to back surgery, obviously, because that is where you started. The books that you've referenced twice, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, you have two books. Back in Control was the first book. The new one is Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Um, And backincontrol.com, you guys can find all of these books. But I also want to talk about COVID because I was able to speak to you a week ago or I guess that was a week and a half ago when I got a positive test and the things that we're talking about right now in relation to needing surgery and um, physically healing or healing your chronic pain by dealing with a lot of your mental and emotional stuff you also sort of in put into practice with COVID treatment and I found that so fascinating you have a new um new thing out called plan a it's thrive and survive it's actually available on your website as well the backincontrol.com but it goes through all of these practices um that to me I, when i first read it i was like just i just wasn't what i was expecting you know when you are sick especially with something like covid you think okay well what do i take i'm sure i need to sleep a lot maybe i need to drink a lot of water do i need to be doing anything else and a lot of it was the same things that you're describing the expressive writing treating anxiety um getting to sleep as you said but practicing forgiveness was one and i just thought these were really fascinating so when i was able to talk to you we talked a lot about the effects of anxiety physically on your body which i know anxiety is is so much more prevalent than it used to be or it's talked about a lot more but i don't feel like a lot of people talk about the physical symptoms that come with that so can you kind of talk us through that well 
what happened, we did come up with a solution for the COVID pandemic, by the way. So plan A is a series of steps you can do to lower inflammatory markers. So if you get sick, when you have this what's called cytokine storm or rising cytokines, which are inflammatory proteins, you'll stay, be, stay below the threshold that kills you. So that's plan A. So it turns out that all the interventions on the doc, so the work group came together around chronic pain. Mm-hmm. It turned out that the solution for COVID is the same solution for chronic pain. Right. You take multiple proven interventions and implement them in an organized fashion, you can drop down your inflammatory markers. It turns out, it turns out that anxiety is an inflammatory disorder. So paradoxically, one of the worst ways to create anxiety is uncertainty, which right now we cannot live in more uncertainty. Right. And what happens, the uncertainty is the threat. The inflammatory the inflammatory reaction is a response. And it's the sensation generated by this inflammatory reaction is anxiety. In other words, anxiety is a reaction to the threat, not the cause of the threat. So we have uncertainty, big problem. So anger cranks up inflammatory cytokines even more. So it sounds psychological, no big deal, but guess what has a direct physiological impact on your body? So if you are anxious or obsessive, or there's lots of ways you can manifest that, when you actually get sick with the virus, you'll have this increased inflammatory response. And what happens if you cross this threshold, then you're going to die. However, I have to just emphasize that if you're generally healthy, the chance of dying is actually quite low. Mm-hmm. The elephant in the room, so to speak, is that, that almost every person that's died from COVID has risk factors, right? Right. Every one of those risk factors involves elevated inflammatory markers. So adult onset diabetes, mm-hmm. cardiac disease, lung disease, Alzheimer's, all those are inflammatory disorders and anxiety bipolar, depression, schizophrenia are all inflammatory disorders. They're all the same thing. So what you're doing with the steps on this Thrive and Survive, the reason I wrote it Thrive and Survive instead of Survive and Thrive is that the data shows very clearly as you train your body to thrive is that your chances of living longer go up dramatically. So people that thrive live on the average of seven years longer you have half the incidence of heart disease, blood pressure problems, and diabetes. And so as you use these tools to lower inflammatory markers, your quality of life goes up, your length of life goes up, your health goes up. And so they're very concrete steps, for instance, in anti-inflammatory diet. You don't even have to lose the weight mm-hmm. to go to an anti-inflammatory diet. Again, drops your cytokines right down, your risk is lower. Is it, is it true that inflammation is the cause of most disease, even cancers? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's where actually this work group is going in an interesting direction because I didn't know this. I may have learned more in six months than I've learned in 30 years. I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable how yeah. this common threat of inflammation runs through the human body. And it makes sense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're under... Again, see, humans have a problem that I call the curse of consciousness is that we can't escape our thoughts. So we all have a sustained threat. And people that are born with a very chaotic, abusive childhood have less equipment to deal with life. They're not as resilient, so they don't cope with stress as well. So that's starting, they're starting out in life. And indeed, people that have abusive childhoods have much higher rates of suicide, depression, obesity, diabetes than the average population by a lot. Wow. It's not subtle. Mm-hmm. So that's been well documented. So this ongoing 
So if you're somebody who comes from a very nurturing, peaceful childhood, I don't want you to use the word resilience because that's not quite the right word, but you have a higher capacity to handle life stresses if you are trained that life is basically safe versus life is basically dangerous. So the metaphor I like to use is that if your nervous system was built like a Ford Pinto versus a Ferrari, those are two different nervous systems. Right. And when the Pinto, so the Ferrari, by the way, can take more stress, but again, when that threshold is reached, the response is the same. So for instance, a person who has this Ferrari of a nervous system might be a CEO of a company, but when he or she breaks, guess what? The reaction is the same if somebody raised from an abusive childhood gets yelled at by a, by a clerk. Okay. And so the stress response is the same either way. It's just that if you come from a chaotic, abusive childhood where you weren't trained to feel safe, because guess what? It wasn't safe. Then your activity is higher, but the effects on your physical health are profound. Mm-hmm. I just find it so fascinating because I do think it's sort of like how you described what happened with you, where you were just suppressing, suppressing, suppressing for so long. And I I find that to be a very common theme in our society, especially amongst men, it seems. I think because as men, you're trained, like you can't have these feelings, like you can't have these emotions, you know, from an early age. And um, I'm just curious, like, how would you, what would you say to someone who, you know, might just not even be aware of the amount of stress? Like, how do we get in touch with the amount of stress that we are carrying? Because like in your book, you described things like IBS even being a symptom of inflammation and stress and anxiety in your body. And I think so many people just like take a pill for that, you know? Right. Well, remember, yeah, this, I mean, right now, I mean, at all ages, 15, 20, 30s. I mean, I used to say my generation, and I'm, and I'm 67, where it was in the late 30s or 40s, people would, quote, have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And right now we have this epidemic of teen anxiety, millennial anxiety, and it's horrible. Now, you can talk about a lot of the reasons for that. But we have more physical comforts than we've ever had. And probably these unmet expectations are probably the biggest threat that we have. We have body image disorders. We also have modern marketing mm. telling us who we should be. Mm-hmm. And so they're telling us there's something wrong with us because we don't look or act a certain way, but then they can sell you solutions to fix it. So there's this endless anxiety. Then we don't play together. In other words, in other words we have electronic screens, but we know the human brain develops through play. And play is to the brain during the day as sleep is as dreams are at night to the brain. In other words, you need play as an organizing principle. It's three-dimensional. There's body language involved. But normal human development depends on play. And guess what? We're locked in classrooms. We're being given a lot of material to learn without the interaction with other human beings. So again, I don't want to get into all the causes of anxiety, but it's there. But again, when you are not relaxing, interacting, and regenerated, again, you're a constant threat. Your body's on fire. And we know colitis is through the ceiling. Now, autoimmune disorders are through the ceiling in teenagers. The instance of chronic pain has gone up at least 800% in 10 years. Wow. Eight times, 800%. So, again, I went, I gave a lecture at a high school in Seattle a few years ago. Now, out of 1,500 students, 500 of them, I'm sorry, 300 of them were on chronic medications that the school nurse had to give them every day. God. So the thing is, remember, the other problem is, you know, how about the word stress management? And would you agree that 
the word stress is usually construed as a, as a psychological construct. Yes. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. It's not. It's your body's, it's your total body's reaction to the environment. And the stress that is the most stressful is the stress that you can't control. Mm. Remember, there's the threat and there's their stress response. And so you, you can't control most of the things in your environment that are stressful because Again, the most stressful are the stressful ones are the ones you can't control. But what you can do, you can learn the tools and strategy to minimize that stress response, drop down the body's chemistry. Remember, anxiety is just that sensation generated by your elevated stress chemicals. The way you decrease anxiety is simply decrease the stress chemicals. Okay. This is the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second compared to 40, 40 for the conscious brain is 20 million to 40 ratio. You can't control it. And so you learn to process it and lower this stress chemical response. That's how you thrive. Hmm. I, I, my brain is going in 800 million directions right now because I find this so fascinating, just our body's reaction. It's sort of what you were saying too about um, stress being psychological. I was just thinking um, if you've ever done any sort of meditation practices, uh, the first thing you always do is relax your shoulders. You do some deep breathing. And most of the time, I know for me, I do not realize how clenched up my body is, you know, in response to maybe how I'm going about my day and the stress that I'm dealing with or even the anxiety. And so it's just interesting to think that we're just a little bit out of touch with our body's response to all of these things. Well, what I find now, I'm I'm working with the Dr. Stephen Portis, who has now become a friend of mine with his polyvagal theory. And what I just didn't realize that, for instance, when you do a deep breathing exercise or slow exercise, slow breathing, um, what you're doing, you're directly stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system through the vagus nerve that actually flat out drops down the inflammatory markers. And that's one of the solutions for the COVID crisis. You have the sympathetic response of inflammatory markers but the parasympathetic nervous system or the vagus nerve actually flat out is anti-inflammatory. So for instance, deep breathing, slow breathing recruits the vagus nerve. Humming, hmm. vibration in the back of your throat stimulates the vagus nerve. If you breathe through your nose, it increases the levels of oxytocin by 1,500%. Really? And what happened, and oxytocin is strongly anti-inflammatory as well as a social bonding molecule. And we always think in oxytocin in terms of lactation and pregnancy. Yeah. It, it's one of the oldest molecules in the body. And Dr. Portis' wife, Sue Carter, is one of the international experts in oxytocin. And oxytocin may be the hormone we're looking for is why social connection is so effective for chronic pain. Mm. And by the way, as far as going back to the epidemic of anxiety, 53% of Americans are socially isolated, which creates the same symptoms as chronic pain. And the highest level of social isolation, by the way, are, are people in their 20s. Really? There's a big Cygnus study done in 2018 that did a huge survey of 20,000 people and 53% of Americans in every city, county, small town, village were socially isolated. But the highest problem was that kids, I'm sorry, people in their 20s. They felt that the, they felt that social isolation had the same effect on your health as smoking about 15 cigarettes per day. Wow, really? I can't get over the 20-somethings. What, what are they doing? Why are they so isolated? Well, I don't know. I think the electronics have made a difference. Yeah. I think that they're so much demanded as far as homework and accomplishments. And 
that I'm noticing also, first of all, I, the other thing, let me just step back for a second. So I love working with people in their teens and 20s and 30s because their brains are very neuroplastic. Mm-hmm. It changes quickly. I can only tell you that once someone understands that anxiety is necessary, it's powerful, you're not going to, not going to control it, but you learn how to work with that, it's game on. Your brain physically changes structure, but your brain is so much more neuroplastic and changes so much more quickly at that age. Mm. So we just have stunning results very, very quickly in people in that age group. It's wonderful. Well, it's interesting because we kind of, uh, we got off on a tangent of anxiety because I'm fascinated by this too, but um, we were talking about the COVID stuff. And earlier you mentioned to me in the treatment for even the, the patients in ICU, one of the main things that was probably inhibiting their healing was the isolation. And I said to you that during the part where I, I had COVID, that was the hardest part for me, being separate from everyone and even people's reaction to you when you have COVID. It's kind of like, oh God, oh gosh, you know, they don't, nobody wants to be around it right now. I understand. But um, that was so hard the physical part was so much easier to get over for me than the emotional aspect of just being isolated so that is right so what do you tell um the listeners what you told me about that the icu patients and your recommendations well i mean part of the problem is is that you have the mask also so what dr portis points out is that you can't see most people's facial expression right and the word he uses is called co-regulation in other words if i meet you i'm assuming you're a nice person so my parasympathetic nervous system kicks into gear to say things are safe is how mammals interact with each other where reptiles don't and so facial expression causes co-regulation but covering each other with the mask is a big problem then in the icu people are isolated and what I don't understand, this is part of our plan B solution, is that, look, okay, you need human contact to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. We isolate people in the ICU, so we're given cues of threat, not safety. But if you're in the, if you're in the ICU, you're already at zero risk of getting the virus because you already have it. Right. You're almost at zero risk for shedding it. In other words, you get a couple negative cultures in the ICU. Most of the time, by the time people are sick, the point of going to the ICU, they quit shedding the virus. They're right. not even contagious anymore. So why are we not allowing families to see patients in the ICU? Because mm. it's, it's not just for the family's social situation, but also as a healing factor. Again, not psychological. You're directly stimulating the vagus nerve with social contact. It's a major healing factor. I 100% buy into that because, I mean, I told you I was isolated and then we found out my boyfriend had it. And so we were able to just be around each other and now we're both fine. Like it helped so much. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of other factors, but it did. The healing process seemed like for us, it happened pretty quickly. And I was doing a lot of your, I did the expressive writing. I've been meditating and all of those things I do believe physically helped me as well, which was just super fascinating to me. Absolutely. No, I mean, the human connection is a major factor in healing. Also, Dr. Dr. Parker just pointed out how we were seeing more violence, both domestically and in the streets. Mm -hmm. And again, when you don't co-regulate, in other words, you're not interacting with other people and calming down the sympathetic nervous system, then people get violent. They go and see what happens when you go into this defensive fight or flight mode, then the blood supply to the frontal lobe of your brain, which is the thinking centers, actually goes offline. You don't even have, you're not, you can't 
think properly because the blood supply to that part of your brain is actually shut down. Wow. So you're just reacting. Correct. You have yeah. a dysregulated nervous system and the violence and stuff is predictable. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I am so happy to get this conversation. Um, I, I definitely think I've bought into just the emotional connection between our bodies responses to life and, and just what's happening inside. But I'm so happy that it's coming from a doctor and a surgeon who used to operate or used to be known for operations. And now you're just completely changing the way that that is written. And I just love that. So the books that we, the people can go find details about your journey and just kind of what you suggest, maybe if you're in chronic pain or dealing with back surgery issues would be back in control. Do you really need spine surgery or the two? Um, And then where else can people find you? Well, the, 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 I just called the doc journey. Um, the then doc journey.com okay there's a series of emails webinars question and, and answer period but also an app that takes you to much it's designed to create the safety experiences based on our workshops awareness hope forgiveness and play and so it's being released last week we're excited about it it's a much more streamlined way of getting through the evolutionary of steps that you need yeah it's called thedocjourney.com Okay. And um, again, the thing I'm so excited about, and that's why I quit my practice, is that it is it's so it's disturbingly simple to realize how much you can do for yourself. It's very self-directed, and that's why we think, from a public health standpoint, that we've got to get this diagnosis of anxiety correct, of it not being psychological, but a response to a threat, because it really just affects the way we treat each other, both personally as a family and society. Mm-hmm. So that's my biggest message. That, look, you got to get this diagnosis right. You got to get to the root cause of disease. Otherwise, we're going to continue to become more and more sick. Yeah. And where can people find the Plan A, the Thrive and Survive COVID? Is that on the backincontrol.com or on docjourney.com? Yeah, no, it's on my website. So the website now is Dr. David Hanscom. Oh, okay. Word. We changed, we, yeah, so it's okay. The website is Dr. David Hanscom, and you can access everything, including the app, on the website. Perfect. Dr. David Hanscom. And we are switching, switching that over this week. That's why it's a little bit of a diff, little different website. Okay. But they can access the Plan A. They can also access Plan B here shortly. And uh, we think the pandemic is solvable right now with existing resources, which yeah. is Plan B. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's certainly things you can do to minimize your chances of mortality, you know, by just taking care of, taking care of your own inflammatory markers. Yes. That was a fascinating part of that whole, the whole thing to me is just inflammation. And I keep hearing that that's the root cause of all disease. And so being able to look at ways to actually target the things that are causing the inflammation in your body is just extremely helpful. So, yeah, so I'm excited to be able to talk to you and share some of these ideas. Obviously, I quit my practice. I felt so strongly about this. It's just hard for me to watch so many people go to pain-free yeah. and other people get injured so quickly. Um, so the difference became just too much for me. That's why I quit. Yes. Well, Dr. Hanscom, thank you so much for being here. And you guys go check out all of the websites that we mentioned. I'm also going to put those in the bio of in the description of this podcast. So you guys can just click through to find all of Dr. Hanscom's books, all of these websites. Uh, Thank you again so much for being here. And thank you guys for listening. 
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.